Hello and welcome to the Manchester is Red podcast. My name is Stephen Wilson. I'm your host today and we're recording on a Monday afternoon after a week of not much really happening in the world of Manchester and United. Isn't that right, Samuel? You were off, should we say, for two weeks, quote-unquote, but you weren't really off. No, off off and on, unfortunately, given that it was the worst two weeks in, in living memory to, to take off. But that's, you know, people might see it as the pitfalls of the job, but we, we all know what we're getting into. So it's I, I did try and avoid getting involved in certain things because there are... There was a dedicated and dependable team, uh, members such as yourself and, and Ty on call, but then unfortunately contacts start messaging you certain things and you check them out and one thing leads to another and you think, no, this isn't going to hold, this is going to have to um, be, be given to the desk. So it's uh, it, it's it's a window into, you know, the, the, as I said, the, the pitfalls of journalism, but nevertheless, it's, it, it's an occupational hazard we all know that we're getting ourselves into from the outset. And another member of that dedicated team, my esteemed colleague, Tyrone Marshall. Tyrone, how are you today? Uh, good. Thank you, Stephen. Good. Yes, looking forward to taking next week off when uh, I believe Eric Ten Hag is going to resign. So, um, so yeah, I'm going to have, have my feet up then. That's a joke, by the way, for any listeners before it ends up on, the, on an aggregator account or something like that. Exclusive. They have uh, they make decisions <laughs> around this time of year, don't they? Solskjaer, Mourinho. Yeah, but I think ten is definitely safe now. Definitely safe. Um, Samuel, just get straight into it. Obviously, you were off when the news broke on Tuesday night that the Glazers were looking or exploring strategic alternatives for the club. Um, obviously, a seismic announcement, absolutely huge news that comes after Ronaldo news that kind of dwarfed it, didn't it? So, what was your stat verdict really when you saw that sitting in your house on your day off? You're thinking, <laughs> bloody hell, this is big. Yeah, I, I had my laptop open uh, because Ronaldo had happened and I'd got in. But fortunately, as I said, you, you guys and whoever was on, Ty was on at that time and others staying on had didn't done a, a you know bang up job of that. There was nothing really more to do. And certainly as far as opinion was concerned, I think I'd said my piece on Ronaldo and everyone else had as well. And, and fortunately, in, in some ways, uh, especially for, for those of you who were working properly last week, the news cycle moved on in, incredibly quickly with... Mark Kleiman's exclusive, uh, the, the Sky News uh, business journalist. And I, I think when those stories emerge and they, they are sourced and reported by a business journalist, you know immediately there's there's no doubting that the credibility of it, it's it's completely uh, believable. And obviously it was it was confirmed within hours. It wasn't really as, as seismic as you say and significant as it was, it, it wasn't really a surprise because we've We've spoken about it previously this this year or this season even that just looking at United's revenues and their their cash flow, the Glazers are going to need added investment sooner or later. And so, as I said, the, the news wasn't particularly surprising in that sense because they were going to have to uh, take that decision at some point. Even though I suppose a lot of United supporters would thought, well, it's been seventeen and a half years. Uh, what's what's going to change things now? But clearly what's piqued their interest has been the sale of Chelsea uh, this year and, and the amount that costs as well for, for Todd Burley and I think is it Clearwater Lake or something like that that the consultants yeah, called. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, so so there's obviously that that's happened. And then, of course, Liverpool were put up for sale as well. And now simultaneously, you've got the two biggest clubs in Britain and two of the biggest clubs in the world in by far and away the, the biggest and most attractive league in the world for sale. And so it would have been, I suppose, remiss of the Glazers not to have tried to turn the heads of investors who are looking potentially at buying Liverpool um, or, or investing in Liverpool when they might actually think, Do you know what, 
we would rather invest in in Man United, and because there's the argument to be made that United are a bigger club than Liverpool. So I think from the Glazers' viewpoint, it's 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 a logical strategy. And, and you know, hearing uh, someone as authoritative um, and, and as times over United supporters, Michael Crick last week discussing it. You know, you still have to preach caution as as giddy as supporters were uh, at, at the prospect of the Glazers' occupation finally ending. It might not necessarily be a straight sale. Um, I think there's, there's going to have to be a, a bit of time um, for, for people to take over it. Essentially, it does feel like a transfer window already. Uh, you, you saw last week, we, we wrote stories, uh, Ty spoke to, to Jim O'Neill, who a lot of United fans will remember from the Red Knights attempt in 2010. Uh, the owner of Zara, uh, he, he's expressed interest. Uh, Apple has have been mentioned as well. When United are valued at five billion or six billion dollars, whatever it is, there's there are only a small pool of uh, very affluent people who who can really afford them, and that is going to attract you know, some some rather unpalatable potential owners. And that was another thing that Crick uh, stated last week that was important, and also echoed by the must statement, which was the importance of um, who, who the owners are. United supporters are one of the most principled there are out there. And I'm not saying this as a dig at Newcastle or anything like that or Manchester City fans, but you've always got the feeling that United fans, proper United fans, paying supporters, matchgoers, would absolutely abhor the prospect of you know some, some shake coming in or uh, an oligarch. I don't think an oligarch could do that these days after what happened with, with Roman Abramovich earlier this year and the war in Ukraine. But there are certain owners out there who've got their grubby or bloodied hands on football clubs. And it's, you know, hopefully if, if there is a positive from the Ukraine war, which feels like a strange statement to make, but it's, it's a minor one in terms of it being related to football. But you'd think that there are more thorough checks as to who the owners could be. But where there's still no independent football regulator, and with the current government really not inclined to install one anytime soon, despite that review that was led by Tracy Crouch uh, and published earlier this year. I'm not certainly holding out any hope that there's going to be one introduced before the next general election, which is still, what, two years away, 18 months away. Um, Labour have already said that they want to, uh, they, they would introduce one. But again, that's that's possibly two years away at the very least. So, it's 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 reassuring that a lot of United supporters have already stressed that they are going to attract some pretty uh, unseemly characters and maybe some shady characters who I'm sure a quick Google check will tell you quite a lot about their character. So I think it's in United's interests and look, whether the Glazers care about that or not, I, I suspect they don't. I suspect they'll just take however much money they can get, if they can you know, whip up an auction of some sort, then then great for them. But you you do hope for United's sake that if it does come to a, a straight sale, that it's one that's palatable, that it's one that um, that, that is, is certainly not of the kind that we've seen at other clubs in the last 15 or 20 years. And there's a reason why many United supporters, the majority of United supporters identified to Jim Ratcliffe as the saviour because probably the worst thing he's done is really really is is 
uh, dodge taxes by you know he's, he's he's a uk citizen but he lives in monaco that's as bad as it gets apparently so that's you know that's i think united fans are more than happy to stomach that and he has already said that um if he were to run a football club it would be as a community asset and for someone who was born in fallowfield coming back to manchester to try and make his boyhood club a force again that's probably the closest you're going to get to one of these throwback chairman who used to be the local butcher and then had the money to take over their local football club and and transform it those days are pretty much well and truly over uh, but i suppose ratcliffe is the is the deluxe version of it we'll come on to that a bit in a second then um because it is important to discuss potential new owners and who they are obviously but ty when the news came through obviously samuel said it's probably not a surprise and he's just laid out the reasons why it is a logical time for them to sell the club because of course it is however do we really think that they want to sell it completely or perhaps are they looking for a minority investor because there was a suggestion i think in august that when talks with them um, there was a u.s equity firm that were potentially looking at a minority stake so is it a permanent deal you think we're looking at here or, or maybe a minority stake? I think if it was a minority stake, it, it would have happened by now. Um, you know, I don't think you put that statement out and basically say you're open to a full sale when you're looking for, for a minority stake. I don't think it gets that far when the minority stake is, is the top target. And I don't think anyone's got to go for a minority stake now they know they're open to selling. Um, if they were looking for a minority stake, then like I say, I think had those reports in August that they've probably been looking for that for three or four months and, and just can't get it, which is why they've put this statement out that they're open to a full sale now. I don't I think it'd be a surprise if you reach this this sort of position and, and row back from from selling the club now. I think once you're out there that the club is on the market, it's it's going to be on the market. And I think there's I don't think it's any coincidence that Liverpool and, and United are on the market at the same time. Like Samuel said, the the, the Chelsea fee raised a lot of eyebrows in the Premier League, especially with American-owned clubs, that Chelsea could be that valuable when they were essentially being listed on eBay, a forced sale through the government. There was no, you know, that, that was a club that had to be sold and had to be sold quickly. It still had 200-odd people interested. You had a consortium willing to pay £2.5 billion plus another £1.75 billion in infrastructure costs. That's more than £4 billion to pay for a club that were, that were being auctioned off, basically. And I think the value of Chelsea caught a lot of people by surprise. And the thing with the thing with the Glazers and FSG is that they've had two attempts in the last two or three years to really monetize their business, which is Project Big Picture in the European Super League. Both have failed. It's hard to see in the short term how we need to get off the ground again. And if they're thinking of cashing out in the next two, three, four years, I can't see a Super League happening in that period of time. So I think this is probably as valuable as, as clubs are going to get. And when you look at the amount of interest in Chelsea, they probably feel that they could still get a good price and a good buy. now you wait another two years, maybe the picture will change. So I think it just shows that it's the it's the optimum time for for people like that who've owned the Glazers for 17 years. FSG must have had Liverpool for 10, 12, something like that. So they've been around a long time. They're both going to make astronomical profits. And I don't think that the Chelsea, the Chelsea thing raised attentions, I think, in terms of club values. But I think the real... You know, the real reasoning here why they're doing it is they've seen that and they also know that their attempts to push revenues into stratospheric levels or levels where it be unaffected by things like not finishing the top four have, have fallen apart because of the ESL and there's no other way to, to kind of lock those revenues in now. So there's no 
there's no other way in the next couple of years, I don't think, to drive the business up, which is why it probably makes sense for them both to, to look to sell now. To expand on your previous point then, Samuel, who would be the ideal candidates to take the club forward, to take over from the Glazers? You've discussed, obviously, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who has been this figure supporters have looked to in the protests and they've kind of held him up. You've discussed his links to Manchester, obviously. Do you think he would be an ideal candidate among the list? And I've saw Saudi Arabia, their sports minister, has come out and said they would support investment from the private sector. Um, you've just discussed kind of the morality of the issue. So could you expand on that a bit more, please, and kind of who do you think would be the perfect owners? I know it is very early at this stage still. Yeah, I, I think with the, the Saudi element, that that does, uh, that I do find that unsettling. And I, I wrote that three or four years ago, just as a point of, of principle, really, just to kind of uh, establish that. And I think when you look at the, the takeover that's gone on at, at City and the success they've had, uh, the, the training ground they've got, uh, the way they're structured as a club, they are one of the best run football clubs in the world. And really they've, they've gone out there, they've recruited the best around it, whether it be uh, Chiki Begiristein as, as a football director or technical director, whatever his title is, and uh, Ferran Soriano above him. And of course, Guardiola has been the coach of the century. They have gone for best in class and that's mirrored also on the pitch as well. So Manchester City fans bound to be absolutely thrilled with the last 14 years um, under under the Abu Dhabi ownership but when you you know when you scratch scratch the surface and you, it's not a case of doing digging as such but you actually you know read some of the things about how that it was Nick McGeegan's piece about five years ago which is, is still recommended and rather than just you know try and remember what he wrote I'd rather you know say to people go out and read that piece I mean the intro to it is um you know if, if you're not sat upright reading the intro then um th there's no point reading beyond that because it, it really is a jolt um the the comparison if you like I think the intro, the intro kind of reflects on the upcoming Amazon documentary and it spices together what um I think the brother of uh, Sheikh Mansour was once filmed doing in in a desert, which I, I think it's probably best I don't go into in any more details of that. But I think it would be unpalatable for Manchester, for its two footballing institutions, to be owned by states. And there's been a lot of money ploughed into um, Manchester by uh, the Abu Dhabi group. There's been money that's come in from China. I think it was only about six or seven years ago that... President Xi was having a selfie with, with Sergio Aguero at City's training ground. Um, yeah, we talk about things that uh, that don't age well, and that's one of them. When you see, you know, the, the issues that people have encountered um, that the world's encountered with with China in recent years, and again, what's going on there at the moment, there seems to be uh, the, the biggest uprising since Tiananmen Square. So, the geopol the geopolitical side of it is something that you, you can't really ignore, but going back to the Saudi aspect, it's it's one name that you think of, which is uh, Khashoggi, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist who was, you know, butchered to death in the Saudi Arabian embassy in Istanbul at the behest of the the, the ruler of, of, of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. I don't want anyone like that being associated with any football club, never mind Manchester United. It's just a point of principle. And we can get into the morality of other countries and I can imagine people listen to this and they're thinking, well, United are owned by Americans. 
and America embarked on an illegal war in 2003. And of course it did. And there's probably not a single country out there that isn't tainted or doesn't have or, or isn't whiter than white. But there are certain you know, there are certain lines that you just cannot cross. And the, the whole thing with um, uh, with, with Khashoggi is, is so current and it really does make your blood run cold when the opening ceremony of the FIFA World Cup, you've got been someone sat next to the FIFA president, who he was also sat next to for the opening game at the 2018 World Cup. Uh, I don't want to get into Infantino. I mean, the guy's a waste of time. But getting back to the ownership point, that's why it's important for United supporters, match goes to uh, value integrity. And as I said, I, I'm pretty sure they do. And, and Michael Crick outlined that perfectly last week. And that was echoed by Mus and it was echoed by a lot of other time-served paying supporters online as well. I think they, they are very mindful of that and that the appearance of it is vital, which is why the majority of them have latched on to Ratcliffe because he has got that connection there in that he is, he's from the area. He grew up uh, in Manchester. He is a United fan. He was in Camp Nou in, in 99. And when when he did make an offer for Chelsea earlier this year, the deadline had passed, but the offer was still made. Now, someone as, as affluent as Sir Jim Ratcliffe is not going to do that unless there's a purpose to it. And it felt at the time that he was laying down a marker. And he's he's gone on the record number of times talking about the potential um, potentially buying United and why it's not been viable or not possible at that time so look when I checked tried to check in with them last week uh it, there was no comment the week before just in response to the uh, Ronaldo comments on the Glazers it was like oh nothing's changed so I can't imagine he wouldn't be weighing up the potential potentially buying United and he certainly wouldn't be a minority stakeholder with the Glazers someone with Ratcliffe's profile he would be majority shareholder majority stakeholder sorry so he he would be I can understand why United fans see him as panacea because beyond that he has got uh cachet in in other sports where um, the, the marathon runner I forget his name but he he bankrolled his um his his record when he did the marathon in under two hours a few years ago, I think it was. Uh, he's investing Ben Ainsley trying to win the America's Cup in sailing. Nice came close to qualifying for the Champions League in Liga last year as well. Obviously, he's invested in cycling as well. Team Sky, uh, I think, have, have been renamed the the Ineos Grenadiers, and so he's he's tapping into to Dave Brailsford, who look. You know, pretty questionable figure as well if you look at Team Sky's history and uh, the, the therapeutic use exemptions but he's someone who is highly regarded in the sporting world and Ratcliffe's got him involved in, in football now with Nice so he's clearly an innovative thinker and he looks best in class as well and he's he's driven despite all his wealth there's that drive there and trying to make United a force again, trying to make them champions again, would obviously trump any other achievement he he has in life, pretty much. I think for all the billions his uh, petrochemicals empire has made, if if he were to take over United and, and make them champions for the first time in 15 years or however long it may be, that's what he would be remembered for. And it, it would make it a great, a great story, Albeit on a you know extremely uh, deluxe level, that here's a guy from Fallowfield who 
went back to to Manchester in his seventies and and made you know made Man United champions again or helped them become champions again. So that would be the romantic element to it. But I suppose with a lot of these things, um, as, as romantic as they may seem, and you know, certainly for Manchester City fans, with Aguero's goal in twenty twelve, it's one of the most remarkable moments in in English football. But their their success is only down to the fact that they were bought out by a state. Um, and they tend to blow every competition out of the water. And that success is a little bit like Chelsea's. Uh, it's rendered rather hollow. I'll tell you what, I ran a half marathon in September. There was no backing for a city gym. What was he thinking? <laughs> I, I might just give him a page up and everything. I, you know, I promoted that quite well on Twitter. He'd have been a good sponsor. Yeah, he would have. Yeah, he Uh, Ty, if we analyse the deal a bit closer, and we kind of I ask you about the stumbling blocks and all the potential stumbling blocks for any deal. Um, you've mentioned obviously the competition at Liverpool; they're on the market. Um, what else do you think could be the stumbling blocks? Really, could it be the Glazers themselves? And obviously, there's been talk of their asking price, and we've saw Chelsea their kind of value that they went for. But there's been talk of the Glazers valuing United well above that. Yeah, definitely. The the asking price in the Glazers themselves is an issue. Um, from what you hear, not all the siblings are maybe singing off the same page in terms of wanting to sell the club. So that could be a potential issue. And just this talk of five, five billion, six billion pound. I mean, maybe they get it given the interest. It just sounds astronomical. I mean, this is going back a bit to who buys it, but no no good can come from a football club being sold for five or six billion pounds. I don't think so, unless someone like Jim Ratcliffe is buying it. But, you know, there are very few Manchester-born billionaires with that sort of money. In fact, there's probably only one, and that's Sir Jim Ratcliffe. Um, beyond that, you know, if, it, if you're selling it for that sort of thing, it's going to American private equity, then you, you can't say better devil you wish, better the devil you wish for with, uh, better the devil you know, rather, with the Glazers. But after, after 17 years, but... An American private equity firm would would not think twice about fleecing the profit to Euro European Super League or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, in terms of stumbling blocks, I think the Glazers themselves and, and what their demands might be are a, are a potential one. I think there'll be enough interest to get a deal done. I think there'll be someone mad enough to to pay what they want or give them close to what they want. And if they've whatever the disagreements may be within the family, if they've reached this position where they're putting out a public statement, they probably know that the writing is on the wall. And then I think beyond that, one of the, you know, one of the interesting aspects of it is the fact that this comes at a point when they've got architects and master planners working on Old Trafford and Carrington and significant money to be, to be invested there. I mean, if the club was sold outright for say 5 billion, a new one is going to have to put, at least a billion pound probably into a into the stadium and i think there's a i had a piece possibly with, two billion with rising possibly costs. two billion yeah well that's uh, yeah yeah right and cost we know building costs uh, are shooting up it's what's happening in the world at the moment um so that that's a huge investment and that is going to be going to be an issue i did a piece over the weekend with kieran mcguire a lot of people might know who's a pretty renowned football finance expert and he was talking about the idea that a new owner if they're in it for the long term might might kind of see the benefits of just building a new Old Trafford that is the best stadium in the world, 90,000 seaters, the best corporate facilities in the world. And the extra money that would make compared to the current Old Trafford would, would probably pay for itself. But you're talking 15, 20 year ownership for, for that sort of money to to come to fruition. But maybe someone sees the long term game in that. Um, 
last I think once once you're at this level, you, you'd think there's going to be a sale, and I think it's the the glaze, you know, the glaze, especially Joel Glazer, is as much as he's a detached owner in terms of going to games. I think he probably knows the mood around the club and what fans think of him. I'm sure he gets told on fans forums and and picks up the general message of of what's going on. And if they were to come out with a statement and then in six months say we've not had anything that we've had an offer that, that suits us, I think they know that that would be considered pretty unacceptable by United fans. And if they think the protests are bad now, they'll, they'll probably go up a level even then. So I think we're probably at the point where this is the beginning of the end for them, where a sale a sale will happen. But I guess when if you're in a position where you need all family members to agree, I don't know if that's the case or not, to, to be entirely honest, I don't know what, what how the shareholding breaks down, but then there's there's obviously potential for, for disagreements going forward, I guess. In terms of the to-do list then, Samuel, if new owners do come in, if we try and whittle it down to the, the three most pressing matters, if you can, is it the old Trafford redevelopment, as Ty's just said, is it obviously first team investment, is it Carrington, or is it, Changing the calling on the concourses to Peroni. What's the most pressing <laughs> <laughs> priorities for the new owners? Very good, very good. Uh, I think I think um, you know Peroni would would be quite high up on, on certain people's lists there, or, or, or maybe something else. Um, it, Old Trafford is that is a huge project that I think United need to really. It's been a while since it's been a. A real tangible update from them, and I'm, you don't obviously rush rush these things, but it's it is interesting that from what I've been told, the, the discussions that have been had behind the scenes, and what they've weighed up, and whether they would knock it down and build a new one or or enhance it, um, that you know already those you know, these mini projects just looking into it are quite advanced in terms of what the cost would be, how long it would take, what the power broker's preference would be. And Joe Glazer's, you know, has, has been opinionated on that. He's given his opinion. Obviously, if he's checking out now or doesn't want to be co-chairman or owner of Manchester United anymore, then what happens with that? You know, I, I still think that it's that they're not going to just leave Old Trafford to be in the state that it's in at the moment. That is going to have to be addressed, whether it's under the Glazer family or under a new ownership. And as, as Ty said, when you weigh up the cost of it, I mean, the, the way the Chelsea transaction was done in the end, I think there was there was an upfront fee. It's, it's like a transfer negotiation, transfer fee, really, upfront fee of something like two and three quarters of a billion. And then there was a dedicated two and a quarter billion, I think, um, to be paid over 10 years. Now, that would be the way to do it in that this two billion that you're, that you promised to pay over 10 years, you say that is for the stadium and the stadium only. And then, okay, it's like 200 million pounds a year on the stadium. But as I said, with the, the cost of Old Trafford, if you if you are to do a new stadium, I think the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in the end, that, that cost a billion pounds. That was completed in 2019, so it's pre-pandemic. When you take into account the cost of living, if prices going up, it probably would be nearer 2 billion Um you know, tools and materials for builders to do um, to do their jobs. They're they're just going up the whole, all the time as well. Brexit's happened as well. That's that's had a an impact on cost. So I think that for a potential owner, that would be the best way to do it. You say this is a ten year project, and that's been the suggestion that it would be a ten year project if you were to do a new stadium because you would need 
it would be a couple of years, maybe three years, just cutting through all the red tape, going to council meetings, speaking to residents in the area, gaining planning permission. How would you go about doing it? Um, the suggestion to me is that the cost between doing a new stadium and enhancing Old Trafford is actually quite similar, which I was surprised by. I think the incentive um, to do a new stadium is that, this is, again, the suggestion to me has been that would actually be a quicker process than enhancing Old Trafford. The suggestion is that enhancing Old Trafford would be a 10-year project, which I was taken aback by in the, okay, you work stand by stand, but surely you could you could do it a bit quicker than that. But with the planning process and, as I said, cutting through all the red tape, apparently not. So it's interesting that obviously they've, you know, they've looked into these things in, in great detail. And um, I think a new Old Trafford, the word is that, you know, they can have it as big as they want. That would appeal to them. Uh, one of the ideas floated is that if there was to be a new Old Trafford, the second tier or even the existing Old Trafford is that the second tier would just be a bit like at Wembley. That's your hospitality section. Um, and then you maximise hospitality. You, you get more revenue in that way. Uh, they would look to build another tier on on, on the, the Stretford end and, and the scoreboard end as well. Um, they could address the roof because although they say the acoustics are better, are actually better than people say they are at Old Trafford, that that angular shape to it is not conducive to it. And it's, it's, it's clearly, you look at the architectural designs of stadiums now, most of them are oval. So there's got to be something to that. So that means an entirely new roof. So the more you think about it, it is a real, you know, it, it would take it would take the best part of a decade, maybe as long as a decade. And look, again, from an owner's perspective, although you would be ploughing a hell of a lot of money into that, you would also you know, be trumpeted as the person who has overseen the redevelopment or the rebuild of Old Trafford. I think that if they were to completely rebuild it, it would be on that site. The suggestion has been, again, uh, from what I was told, was that it would maximise the space behind the Stretford end where you've got this fast car park, um, which really, you know, you look at it and you think, look, this is a waste, really. Rather than have a big car park there, you could be doing more with it there just just as a just as a site never mind the stadium and so I, I've always thought that that would be the best way forward do what Tottenham did you you knock down the um uh, the old stadium and you build a new one not what throwing away it's it's not that far away at all um but again that's you know we're, we're rambling on about it or I'm rambling on about the stadium and that's completely, it's not completely separate to obviously a takeover, but it's such a huge part of it. And financing that, as, as Ty touched upon, it's just such a huge project that if a stadium is going to cost two billion, then you've got the separate value of, of Manchester United. And you're already talking about five billion. Now, is anyone going to commit seven billion at the moment? I know, you know, some people might might think you know that's that's worth a pump but it was interesting reading uh lord o'neill's interview with ty last week where he thought that chelsea were massively um uh their their, their fee was you know inflated and ratcliffe has pretty much said the same thing as well so these you know these very affluent people these billionaires who are having a look at football clubs but then they're thinking twice because they think they're they're overpriced is 
an interesting subplot to it, which could mean that you know it, it, it drags out the process longer than than people might hope it would be. Ty, I think it was around four hours um, before the Glazers' announcement that the small matter of Cristiano Ronaldo's future was decided um, when we were obviously online together. Um, by mutual consent, I think around five days after his interview, the second part of his interview with Piers Morgan, um, obviously he said he doesn't respect Ten Hag, he made other extraordinary claims. It was inevitable that was going to be the ending, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I don't think that was surprising to anyone. I think that from the day after the interview and and you, you got the impression that United, you know, through the, the statement they released said very little, but it said enough to make you think that this was the route they were, they were going down just in the way it was phrased and the terminology they used. Um, and yeah, it, it was, you know, from, from the moment after that, it was inevitable really. There was never going to be any way back, not just that, you know, the, the criticism and the implied criticism of Ten Hag, the general criticism of the club, even to his own own players, you know, when he's asked which players he admires, and he can essentially name three three teammates that he admires. I mean, there's no way back in the dressing room for him after that. Um, so yeah, it was you know it was always going to be game over, and obviously it was it was mutual agreement without him receiving another penny in wages. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder if this was really necessary at all. I'm sure if he'd have asked to go in January and, and come up with a club that wanted him, United would have let him go because it's been pretty clear for a long time that it's just not working and United I don't think are too fussed about carrying his wages Ten Hag doesn't see him as someone who fits in A to his style and, and B to his off-pitch philosophy really in, in terms of team spirit and, and things like that given the misdemeanors we'd seen already so you know you, you think that interview was was pretty pointless really and just the, the choice as well I don't know if anyone's seen but since we've been on Piers Morgan's tweeted another football exclusive that he's got tonight um, with Richard Keyes and Andy Gray, so kind of kind of shows the, the level that Ronaldo's at, you know, and his, his football interviews of Ronaldo and Keyes and Gray spinning their narrative, and I'm sure they'll they'll get a soft drive from him as well. Yeah. I mean, you can you can just imagine the can imagine the golf competition, can't you? Morgan, Ronaldo, Trump, Keyes, and Gray. It's a five ball that no one wants. That um, the dinner party, so, yeah. <laughs> it's something a party, isn't it? I mean, you wouldn't get a word. They'd, just, they'd all be talking about it, wouldn't they? No, no one would get a word in edgeways. Yeah, you can imagine Piers Morgan going over being asked, so what did uh, what did, what did the rest say? I don't know. <laughs> I just talked over them. Um, yeah, it, it, you know, that'd be painful. So, so yeah, it, it was inevitable. It's, I mean, it's for the best now, but it just seems completely unnecessary. And I'm sure in time is, is legacy. Um a bit of a dreadful word, but I'm sure he'd be remembered for, for the, the, the greatness he, he brought in those first six years. The return has, has clearly not worked out in any way, shape or form, really. Um, and it just seems a just seems a pointless and unnecessary way for it to end, really, when I'm sure he could have left on a free transfer in January if a club wanted him. That's that's what he's got, essentially. I'm sure United would have would have happily let that let that happen, really, if a club would have wanted him. So it just seems an unnecessary way to, to go about burning your bridges really but but there we are Ronaldo's left the building Samuel and obviously that means Martial is the only recognised centre forward at the club he's been injured a lot of times this season his record leaves a lot to be desired in that regard Rashford scored eight goals he's been in form we know that but he's better on the left he's, he's not a centre forward you've wrote the line that the club would obviously be open to signing a striker in January so can you tell us a bit more about that and it would be negligence not to sign a striker in January wouldn't you simply have to sign a forward 
I'm sorry to break the news to you, Stephen, but they are going to try and get Chris Wood from Newcastle. <laughs> Short-term battering ram, Premier League proven goal scorer. Uh, to to get them into the top four, uh, twenty goals would get you. Twenty goals, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was told this morning that already uh, Chupa Moteng has been has been oh, linked to United, which is, I mean, given given Odin Agallo a few years ago, that that is somewhat uh, believable, and he he does, I suppose, fit that profile of um, short term Premier League experience. I hesitate to say goal scorer because I really don't think he scores many goals, but it, he serves a purpose for Bayern Munich because the Bundesliga is a relatively, um, you know, it's, it's it's an easier league to to operate in, and if you, if you're a backup striker as well, uh, it's it's not really as much of an issue as if you're a backup striker in the Premier League where you've really got to be on your toes whenever you come into a game, whenever you start a game, and. It's it's a lot easier um, to to expose a striker at that level as well. So I would I'd be worried if United did go down the Chupo Moting route. Um, I mean, if if they'd actually floated Marco Arnautovic as a suggestion now, I don't think they'd have had as much of a backlash as they did in the summer when the backlash was pretty fierce and um, they they got both barrels during that period and, and and rightly so because the timing of that was ridiculous given that it was a squad rebuild, it was a summer transfer window. And there they were seriously considering actually bidding for for Arnautovic. But it is that kind of profile they need to really look for because I would be very, very... I'd also be worried if they just said, let's just give PSV Eindhoven £30 million for for Cody Gakpo, um, who who obviously was a player that was under consideration briefly by United in the summer. But as Dutch-centric as their transfer window was the weakest outfield player has been the only Dutchman uh, in, in Malaysia. And with with Martinez, the, the South American character has been crucial there. Ericsson, yeah, you know, he, he played for Ajax, but he, he's he's been a class class player in the Premier League. Anthony is similarly to uh, Martinez, although he's he's not hit the heights of Martinez, he's got the requisite character to um to have an impact at United. Malassia is the only one who struggled. And looking at this Dutch team, uh, I mean, Louis van Gaal is trying to turn the clocks back to 2014, but they do not have a forward fit to lace the boots of Robin van Persie or Ian Robin or Wesley Snyder. That's what separated, that's what made them a really good side back in 2014. That's why they went deep in that tournament. It was because they had some terrific forwards. But it was a very methodical Dutch side and you know, van Gaal made the most of it. This Dutch team, you know, I think they've lost momentum since since Koeman uh, left for, for Barcelona a couple of years ago. And Van Gaal's done a very good job. I think they're still unbeaten under him. But Vincent Janssen started their first game and you know, Gakpo has got a couple of goals. He's having a good World Cup. But the timing of the World Cup is obviously a red flag as well because the last thing you want to be doing is spending a substantial amount of money on someone who has played well at the World Cup. And... You can imagine United, you know, kind of looking at, at Gakpo. But as I said, they have, if, if they were to actually sign him in January, they would say he was under consideration in the summer. This is not an knee-jerk reaction to his performances at the World Cup. But I think they need to think a little bit more outside the box. And I, I don't mean go to the Chinese Super League and see what Premier League cast-offs are, um, are just, you know, got their feet up there and, and making them out to be a bit of a competition winner or anything like that. 
but they are going to need someone because there were fundamental issues with that attack before Ronaldo left. Um, I think we've said all season, really, that the attack is light and that's with six or seven forwards. It, it For for one month, I suppose, it, it bumped up to seven because Garnacho came in the team and has done brilliantly and he's he's established himself as a first-team squad uh, squad member now. But with Ronaldo gone, although although he's he's passed it frankly and he's he's been more of a hindrance than a help for united when he when he was playing for them this season at least with him you did have some presence and there was a fear factor still albeit a, a flagging fear factor but with him gone they absolutely do not have a dependable goal scorer in that team and you can't really take that risk and i'm not saying that whoever they're getting in january is going to be an outright you know a, a guy who's going to come in and is going to be scoring goals week in, week out. But they do need to get someone in because look, Champions League football is on the line for them. Um, I don't think any of us really predicted at the start of the season they'd finish in the top four. They have improved since then, but they are still fifth. Um, you know, there, there are ways of looking at it as glass half empty, glass half full. I think they've had a, a reasonably progressive few months uh, so far this season. But they are taking chances if they don't do anything with the attack. And and I've been told that they essentially, the, the quote that was used uh, to me was that they can hit the button and solutions will present themselves and that they've, they have they can compile a shortlist immediately of attainable mid-season forwards who fit the bill and fit what the Ten Hag's profile of, of a forward to bring in in January. Who that is still remains to be seen, but they, they are going to have to be active. And look, they've had advance notice as well because Ronaldo is, you know, I mean, the, probably the best thing he's done for them this season in some ways was was do that interview because it allowed them to get rid of someone who was who was becoming a nuisance, really, who was becoming a problem. And they can, you know, they can now, they've, they've got, what, six weeks or whatever it may be before the January window opens. So that is going to increase expectation from supporters that something immediate has to happen early in January. And they have done that before. I mean, he was extremely overrated and he was he was not very good, even though it did seem like a very good signing at the time. But Henrik Larsson, when he did join on loan, that was announced, I think, in mid-December because um, the, the Swedish league, had, that season had ended. So he was on his three month uh three month break until the seat uh until the the new season so they were able to arrange that very very quickly and they need to they need something lined up as soon as possible because when when the domestic season when the the club season restarts the games are going to come thick and fast and if you and if united are to advance in competitions uh january promises to be an extremely busy month and in February they've they've not got the two free midweeks because they've they've got Barcelona in the, the knockout ties. In reality John Murtha is gonna click that transfer button and Agarlo's gonna appear, isn't he? For his <laughs> fairy tale return. Is he playing in Saudi Arabia now as well? He is. Yeah. He's he is. He is. Yeah. yeah, he's still still going strong. God, what about Nick Nick Nicholas it's got Nicholas Fulcrook written all over it, hasn't it? I uh, yeah, yeah. Well it's I mean, not a bad shout actually. Yeah. Took his goal very well. Good. It did, yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, Ty, if we stay just to end the podcast, I'm conscious of time. I wanted to ask you about Rashford in England. I'll not ask Samuel about England because that's slated <laughs> earlier. Um, obviously, England play Wales tomorrow night. We're recording on the Monday. Um, Southgate's brought him on both games, but he's played on the right side, which I thought is quite unusual. 
Um, I'd actually start him against Wales. Could you see him starting? Uh, yeah, I'd start him. I'd start him on the left. Um, yeah, cool. he, he took his took his goal on the on from the right pretty well in in the first game. I was surprised he played on the right. Um, no, it was the first game when him and Foden came on and yeah. both played on their on their natural sides, didn't they? I mean, the problem is you've seen this at United as well. There's just with the the trend for inverted wingers these days, there's just far more left sided attackers than there is right because there's so few left footers out there, and you know they're they're a lot more their scarcity value is is a lot higher than left siders. You look at the number of, of potential left sided options United have got, and then you end up with Alanga or Rashford or Fernandez shoved onto the right to to make up the numbers basically. Um, so yeah, I would I would start him tomorrow night. I think he's deserving of a start and deserving of a start off the left and he's you know he's he's, he's looked pretty sharp in, in what he's done so far so far and I think United really need to get that contract sorted out don't they <laughs> <laughs> oh that was fantastic for Stephen Ralston's emergency contract <laughs> <laughs> Steve, Stephen would be he, he could be sat on the beach or passing Ibiza and if the news dropped he would rush out and say do you know what I've got I've got to do a Marcus Rashford emergency contract. <laughs> I'd abandon a pint of Peroni for a Rashford statement, of course. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Samuel. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Tyrone. Thanks, Stephen. And thanks, Stephen. Take care.